Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. You know that uh, prayer is an act of humility. We're acknowledging our dependence upon God. And I can get up here and give you a speech, a Jesus speech, and uh, some inspiring quotes or things along those lines, but we really want God to do something supernatural in this room. Amen? Some of us here need uh, some of the living water uh, the Scripture talks about. Some of us in here need encouragement. Some of us in here need to just fan the flame of the passion that's already happening in our hearts. And so let's just go to the Lord and ask Him to do that, and then uh, we'll open up the Bible together. Sound good? All right. I'm going to do it anyways. Let me pray. Father, thank You um, that we can come into Your presence today. Thank You that we've already been able to sing songs about Your goodness, Your character, Your love, Your grace, Your truth even about difficulty, uh, singing from that psalm in Psalm 42. And Father, I pray um, as people walk into this building today and as the kids go into the the kids' building and different things happen in different uh, places around this campus today that your presence would be felt. I pray as people tune in online uh, for a few minutes or for the entire service uh, that you would meet with them, that you would speak. I pray that as I speak that you would speak through me. Uh, Father, I pray for this to be a, a holy moment for each one of us in our lives as we grow in the truth of your word. And I pray that we would see some things from your scripture uh, that maybe some of us have read this passage a thousand times that you would um, speak anew by your spirit. It's living and active your word. And I pray, God, that it would pierce us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, how was your week this week? Yeah, some good weeks. Hopefully you had a better week than me. I'm going to be Debbie Downer right here in just a second. It was my birthday. It was the worst birthday I ever had. Um, we went to this Mexican restaurant as a staff. It was terrible, Mexican restaurant. I don't know who picked that, Michelle. Not sure who did that. But uh, I don't know if they were pumping water straight in from Mexico because I got Montezuma's Revenge, or maybe it was food poisoning. Uh, but I spent my birthday on the uh, bathroom floor at my house after having uh, lunch together with the staff. And uh, once I was able to get everything that was on the inside on the outside, um, we were doing much better, but I was feeling pretty weak. And so what I did is, uh, just in recovery, laid in my bed and watched a uh, a couple of movies that I had seen before. One of them, I love Matt Damon movies, and uh, one of them was The Martian. I don't know if you've seen that or not, uh, but he's a scientist, a botanist, and he gets stranded on Mars is the summary of what ends up happening. Uh, he's, a, he's a botanist. Uh, I think his name was Dr. Mark Watney uh, in the movie. It's like year 20, 35, or 37, um, which doesn't even seem that far away now. Uh, but we're doing these uh, trips apparently to Mars to try and figure out how to grow things and live there and all this. And so there's a chemist there, and there's the botanist there, and there's all these people. But this storm comes in that they weren't expecting, and it's worse um, than the, anything they had seen. And so even though they were planning on being there for 30 days on uh, Seoul 18, on day 18, uh, while they were there, uh, they had to take off. But as they were heading from their hub to their rocket ship to get off Mars, Watney gets hit with some debris and separated from the team, and then something pierces his suit, so they think that he's dead. And so they leave the planet. The next day, they show this scene where there's dust blowing over top of his suit, and it's alarming, like uh, low oxygen, low oxygen, and he wakes up. He's still alive, and he's on this planet. But all of his team have left him. And so he makes his way back to the hub, does this surgery, gets this device out of his body, which you later find out, uh, some of you know science better than me, that's actually what saved his life. And I'm thinking, no, that sounds terrible. Maybe it would have been better just to die up there. But he, he comes on, and he's got no contact with NASA, but he starts doing video diaries. And so he gets on this video diary, and he says uh, to the, the camera, um, this will be a surprise to my crewmates, all of NASA, and the world. But I'm alive. 
Surprise! <laughs> and then he goes through and starts to talk about his dilemma. He says, I'm living in a hub that was designed to last for 30 days. The next man trip to Mars is not for four years. I've got food for 30 days, and I've got to figure out how to make it last for four years. I'm on a planet with no water, and nothing grows, so I've got to figure out how to grow my own food and make his own water. And he goes, and he goes through all these other obstacles of things that could go wrong, and he says, but none of that matters if I can't make contact with NASA. And so then the movie gets into him trying to overcome these obstacles and survive. He's got a mission. His mission is to get back home. And he says in it, I tell my family, no matter what, if I don't make it, I'd never stop fighting to get back home. And there's one point where, as a botanist, he grows potatoes on this planet. And I love it. He goes, in your face, Neil Armstrong, like as he's thinking through what had happened in the moment there of that, and uh, still not knowing if anybody's going to even know that this happened for him. And I won't ruin the movie for you, but a little spoiler coming. Their turning point is when his crew is about four months into their journey on the way back to Earth. They realize there's a possibility they could go back and pick him up. And so they have to decide, am I going to potentially die myself? Am I going to spend another 500 days in space and all those things, not see family, all that? And um, like I said, won't give you the spoiler on that. But at the end of the movie, he's back on Earth. And so those of you... <laughs> Those of you who are uh, science people and math people, you can go watch the movie and see, is it all Hollywood, or could this actually happen? But it's pretty crazy, a bunch of the things that take place, but he's back on Earth, and he's a survival instructor for future astronauts. And he says this line, at some point, everything's going to go south. And you can decide whether to accept that or get to work. Now, I think it's been overstated, probably. Uh, what's happened in the last 18 months in our world, the pandemic, and I could say everything has gone south, but I want to ask you, this is an individual question. This is not what's happened in our world. Has everything gone south on you? If it hasn't right now, let me tell you, one day it will. What are you going to do? I know for my own family, just being transparent with you, uh, since we've come back from sabbatical, it's been about two months now, um, we haven't experienced spiritual battle, and this is as intense as we've experienced the last two months since when we planted the church. If it's not tough right now, it will be. So you can just passively accept, well, life's tough. Jesus said there'd be trouble. Or you can get to work. Our passage of Scripture today tells us what it looks like if you want to get to work. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 today. We're starting a brand new section of the book of Ephesians. See, one of the things I love about that Matt Damon movie is that he lived a life that was conducive to his calling. He lived a life as he pursued, like he told his family, I'm not going to stop fighting. I'm going to keep going after this mission. He had an intense mission to get from 140 million miles away back to home, and he lived accordingly. The passage of Scripture we're looking at today talks to us about walking worthy of the calling that we have. And so a calling that each one of us has as followers of Christ. But in order to, to start here, I know some of you, today's your first time ever even attending maybe church at all, but Southbridge, uh, we jump into chapter 4. Chapter 4 can come across like it's moralism. Chapter 4 can come across like there's all these behaviors, and this is what a good Christian looks like. Do these things. If you're not doing them, start trying harder. Let's not forget it's in light of all the first three chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians are the fuel the motivation for the last three chapters of Ephesians. So in the first three chapters, you only had one command. That's an imperative, only one imperative. The rest was all indicatives. Indicatives are statements of truth about God and what God has done. So you've got three chapters of all the things that God has done for you, and now we're going to look at three chapters of what He expects from you. 
In light of what he's done for you, though, and you can't forget the first three chapters. If you just jump into the last three chapters, you go, all right, be good, be kind, don't lie, work hard. Like all those things are going to be things that we're going to see stated. But it's in light of what God's done for you is the motivation for that, the fuel for that. It's not on you just to try hard and be moral. It's one of the big plagues of the American church is the moralism that takes place. And so I don't want you to miss that. Look at what he says, though. In light of all the things that God has done, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, been made alive in Christ. You've got a new identity, a new experience. The resurrection power of Christ is inside of you. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it doesn't say to, to make it. You've got to maintain the unity. And here's the theological foundation for that unity. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so here, as you look at verses 1 and 2, uh, verse 1 really gives us the, the, the framework for the rest of the book. And there's two words that I think it's really important for us to understand. So before we even unpack chapter 4 as a whole, think about the, the two words that are there. One of them is the word walk. I told you back when we were in chapter 2, the word walk was introduced in the book. But I said when we get to chapter 4, the word walk is going to be even more important. I don't know if you remember that, but when we were in chapter 2, I told you, you know, remember I said you go out in the lobby and watch, and different people have different walks. There's strides and struts and limps and all kinds of different walks, right? I said, but there's only two paths. In chapter 2, we saw the two paths. In chapter 2, and verse 1, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, and we followed the way of the world, and we followed our flesh, and we followed the devil. That was the path. That was one path. But then in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in chapter 2, it says, if you've placed your faith in Christ, this is a huge if, okay? This is not just because you're at church, you don't become a Christian. Because you're an American, it doesn't make you a Christian. But if you've placed your trust in what Christ did for you on the cross and received Him as your Savior, if you've done that, then you've been made alive in Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith. And so verse 10 says, there's a new walk, a new path. And verse 10, it says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now here in chapter 4, we're talking about this walk. What it, walk is a metaphor for life. This is how you live. This is the, as you're walking the path of life, the abundant life that Christ has for you, this is what it looks like. And there's another word in there that many of us will struggle with. Whether you had a really laid-back background or whether you had a really legalistic background, this word, worthy. It says here to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what does the word worthy mean? If I were desiring just to get you to put something in your notes, just to understand a definition in your head, then I might read you one of these quotes that defines worthy. And it kind of gives us an idea, at least, to get our mind around. It says, by one Bible commentator, I trust this guy, his name's Kent Hughes, if you want to look him up. It says, the Greek word translated worthy is axios, which has the root idea of weight. This is the word from which we derive our English word axiom, which means to be of equal weight. In an equation, the axiom indicates doing something to each side of the equation so it remains true. Paul is saying we should try to live lives equal to the great blessings described in chapters 1 through 3. Okay, that's a lot of words. 
And so another Bible commentary that I'll read on most weeks when I'm preparing a sermon is the Bible knowledge commentary. It says it really simply. It just says this. The word worthy, axios, that's a Greek word, means equal weight. One's calling and conduct should be in balance. We'll think, wow, I can be a little ADD, and I know some of you all probably can be too. And so I wanted to give you a visual picture because this is so important to understanding the next several chapters, not just today's sermon, of what we're talking about here. And so I've got a little prop over here, a big prop, I guess, as far as size is concerned today. It's because I wanted to give you a visual of what we're talking about here. And on one side of this seesaw, I said teeter-totter when I was talking to the staff about the idea. I don't know if that's a Yankee thing. I don't know if you remember these things from the playground, but on one side, it represents our calling. And so, call, there's some weight to this side over here. Um, I can't just, you know, tap it down. There's some stuff inside this bucket. Um, and the problem for some of us is we make the calling of call, being called to Christ very simple. Like, just pray this prayer and you're all set. Do this religious ceremony, do this formula. But our calling that's being talked about in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is not, you know, you're calling to be a dad or you're calling to be a boss or you're calling to be an employee. It's the general call to all Christians, the call to salvation. So what's wrapped up in that word call is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Like Kent Hughes was saying when he said it's all of 1, 2, and 3. And so think, and you probably think of great truths from chapters 1, 2, and 3 that I don't even think about. But just in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you are an orphan. You've been adopted into God's family. That means you're a son or daughter of the King of Kings. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are blameworthy, you've been made blameless. You are unholy, you've been made holy. You are a sinner, you're now a saint. We haven't gotten past the first 10 verses of Ephesians right now, by the way. And so you start thinking, like, think about the things we've talked about. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, you've made alive in Christ, you have the power of the resurrection at work inside of you. Anybody listening to this truth? You guys like this? That's good stuff from Ephesians. That's the call, that's the call, okay? So this is weighty, don't make this light problem is we talk about equal balance. We talk about worthy, axios. And then we go to live lives and we're like, well, it was by grace that it happened. And so if it's great, we kind of live this passive Christianity. I didn't do anything. We'll let go and let God. We're just going to have him do everything. Well, there's like a little bit of truth in that, but you're missing all the, what about all the commands? What about all the demands? What about deny yourself? What about take up your cross? What about all of the things that the scriptures require of you? Oh, yeah, we don't want to think about that. Just pray and got eternal life and see you in heaven, buddy. <laughs> and so then we live lives that don't, they're not worthy of the calling that we have. And so what's required and what we're going to see in our passage today is that the walk has to have some weight to it as well. I don't know if this is going to work, by the way. I've tried it out. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Oh, don't get excited yet. Don't get excited yet. Uh, uh, uh. Does it happen? Front row, you can stay there the rest of the service and see how that works out. But see, here's what, what worthy, and this is why worthy is a struggle to define, right? Because some of you, when you hear worthy, based on your background, are going to think, well, Jesus paid so much for my salvation, then being worthy must mean that I'm paying him back in some way. That is not, that is not what we're talking about here. You're not paying him back. You've probably heard the debtor's ethic taught, maybe even by pastors before. I'm sorry if I've ever implied it in my own preaching, but it's this idea. Jesus dying for me was the most he could do. My living for him is the least I can do. Let me tell you the problem with that. That's guilt-based living. 
That will last until you get to the parking lot and somebody cuts you off. I've got to try harder. You jerk. Like, I didn't, no heart change in that. That is not what we're talking about here. We're not saying that somehow to be worthy means that you deserve your salvation. That somehow you've gotten to a place, like I was a really bad sinner, but now I've been a really good saint. And so I kind of deserve what, that's not what we're talking about here. And so the language that I'm going to use in the points is going to be more like what Paul uses. He doesn't use the word worthy in, in chapter five. He gives some list of some moral behaviors. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to go through and he's going to talk about, hey, you shouldn't, the, the vulgar language and inappropriate crude joking, that's not part of a believer's life. It doesn't mean if you do that that you're going to hell. It means if you do that, it's like you're wearing clothes that don't fit. If you do that, it's not conducive to who you are as a Christian. It's, it, he uses the language proper. That is not proper for you, suitable in some of your translations. And he goes on in that. And he says that this is, not, this is not fitting for you. And so this idea of worthy, fitting, suitable, I'm going to use the language of conducive. You're commanded in this passage of Scripture to live a life, that, to walk a walk that is conducive to your calling. And that's the first point of today's message, and that's really the big framework for chapters 4, 5, and 6. You're commanded to walk worthy would be the language of the text, or uh, to walk to live conducive to the calling by which you've been called. And did you see that in the text? If you get back to chapter 4 and verse 1, it says there in verse 1, the word calling two times, but notice what Paul says about it. If we talk about what does it look like to be conducive, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We talked about that, what that calling is already. I think it's interesting here that Paul points out that he's a prisoner for the Lord. And it's interesting because he's already done that. He's already told us this in this book, in chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So why, why is he telling us again? Is he bragging? I'm in prison. I'm like, who's bragging about that? Like, think about that. If you, had, if you had three kids, you'd be like, hey, this one's in the military. He just got this medal. This one just graduated from college. But you haven't seen my other son. He's in the clink. It's awesome. Like, why does he go in here? Like, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. He says it at the end, I'm in bonds of chains. And he's showing us that to walk conducive to this calling, there's a cost. And part of the cost for him was imprisonment. He's falsely accused. He's, Jesus didn't come and arrest him. It was Rome that arrested him. But he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And so what we see here is contrary to what many of us experience in our Christianity. And so I just want to ask you this simple application question. You can answer on your own or in your small groups, however you want to do this. But does it ever cost you anything to follow Jesus? And maybe it was a relationship, maybe it was a promotion, maybe it was a job, maybe some experience that you've had in your life. Maybe, maybe you've really sacrificed even beyond those things. But has it ever cost you anything? Because a lot of times the way that Christianity is pitched in America is like an infomercial pray this prayer, believe these things. If you just believe, like, th think about how crazy it is that some of us think that we have eternal life because we believe the right facts. The Bible says even demons believe the right stuff. Like, but we get this crazy idea that that's all it is, is believing stuff or that it's praying something. Like, when you look at what Jesus says in the Scriptures, that's not what it is to come follow Him. How can you be a follower of Christ if you never follow Christ? And then you look and you see what Jesus says in the Bible. He, he talks about a cost. Let me read you this a little bit longer verse, but uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. Jesus is super popular. He's been doing miracles. Everybody thinks Jesus is awesome. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower? And so Jesus gives a couple illustrations. Jesus gives a ton of illustrations. He gives two of the same point here. Look what he says. Which of you not desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he, send, he thinks of another solution. He sends a great delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, this decision is way bigger. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Did anybody tell you that when you went to follow Jesus? Like most of us, we have no idea that there's a cost to actually walking with Jesus. And then you continue to look at the Scriptures. It's not like this is one passage of Scripture. A couple chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, there's this really popular guy who's got a bunch of money. He comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In summary, Jesus says to him, be perfect. He goes, I am. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't go, way to go. Jesus says, okay, go sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor. I love that he says give the money to the poor. I think that he probably did that because Judas was there and Judas was stealing money from their treasury. And Judas was probably like, like some of us when we see people, it's like, if they, if they would be a Christian, that'd be awesome for God's team. I think Judas was sitting there like, get that guy because I want some of his money. And Jesus doesn't say, get, it's not a TV preacher. He's not, give your money to me if you really believe. He goes, give your money to the poor and then you can come follow me. The guy leaves sad because he realizes there's a great cost. Was Jesus teaching that rich guy you can buy your salvation if you just give all your money away? No, he knew that the guy had an idol in his heart, and it was money. And he's saying, Until you, I have to be the supreme love in your life. That's the cost of following me. Was he saying, does, the Bible says to honor your mother and father. Why is Jesus saying, hate your parents? He's saying, because your love for me needs to be so supreme to your love for your family that it looks like hatred. Ooh, that'll step on some toes in RDU. Well, I can't serve Jesus. I'm hanging out with my family. Hmm. We haven't heard this. We, are not, we don't know about a Jesus like this. Listen, listen to this passage of Scripture, what Jesus says in the Bible. Then Jesus told His disciples, if anyone, I think that counts for us today, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I thought you were supposed to help me exalt myself, Jesus, and take up His cross. I don't like crosses. And follow me. Why would we do this? For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Yet, for Jesus, I thought you were my key to gaining the whole world. It forfeits his soul. And what shall a man give in return for his soul? And let me just, just ask you, you don't have to verbally respond, but I want you to be honest with yourself and answer. Is the Jesus we just read about in the Bible the Jesus you're following? Because if he's not, let me tell you the problem with the Jesus you're following. He's not real. He didn't die for you. He's not speaking to you today, and he will not be there on judgment day. See, the Jesus of the Bible says there's a cost to come follow him. That's what Paul's telling us in Ephesians chapter 4. He's telling us there's a co- I'm a prisoner of Christ. And, and he goes on, and he tells us what the cost is, and you want to know what it looks like to be conducive to your call, that there be a weight to your walk that's conducive to your call? Well, here's what it is. Look at verse 2. I, therefore, a prisoner of Christ, walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. What, what is it? Verse 2. 
with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Let me be honest with you. I've been studying the Bible for, you know, 20 some years that I've been a Christian. If I hadn't read this passage and you asked me, what is it that is a conducive walk? I would not have listed these things. In fact, I could have probably listed a hundred things and not come up with several of the things on this list. Courageous faith. You've got to be bold in evangelism. You've got to be willing to do is total surrender. Putting up with one another? <laughs> I don't think I would have put that on the list. But it's such a gracious list, isn't it? Because that, even just saying that, bearing with one another, it's an acknowledgement that you're going to be living this out with other sinners. You're going to not only annoy each other, sin against each other, which means you're going to need to be patient. Patience. Patience and bearing with one another and gentleness. Do you know what all these things are? They're all characteristics of Christ. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, very patient with us. Gentle, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Putting up with one another. Do you know what the Bible he actually says about Jesus with his disciples? How long do I have to put up with you? Like they were annoying. Jesus got, uh, being annoyed is not a sin apparently. Jesus did not sin, but he was annoyed. Like how long, you have little faith. Why are you so slow? <laughs> but I think the one that puts them all together is the first one, humility. Humility is not self-deprecation, by the way. We get that confused in the church. We think if somebody talks like they're a worm or bad or not very smart or whatever the things are, that that means they're humble. That is a reverse form of pride because pride's when we're thinking about ourselves a lot. The person who's always talking about their flaws is thinking about themselves a lot. Humility is when you don't have to think about yourself, when you're free from that and you're free to serve other people. Humility is what we see in Christ, like when He washes His disciples' feet, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, and He gets up, and the Scripture says, knowing who He was and knowing where He was going. So He's fully aware of His identity. He's fully aware of His mission, and He's able to serve these men that are arguing about their positions. He puts a towel around Himself, and He washes their feet. Humility is Philippians chapter 2, who, being in the very nature of God, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but took the nature of a servant became obedient, obedient to his Father. He only did what the Father told him to do, even to the point of death on a cross. That's humility. And here Paul says that, that the key for us in, in walking that's conducive is that we walk in humility. Our problem is that we're so proud, and I get it. It's, that's a big problem for some of you because you're so awesome. I totally understand. You're like the Gaston of Christianity. No one shoots like Gaston. No one serves like I do. You know, I get it. I understand but there's a verse in the Scriptures I want to remind you of that's written by another guy. Paul's writing Ephesians. There's a guy named Peter who writes 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. He's quoting a proverb from the Old Testament, but he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, because this passage is actually in community. It's not just an individualistic thing. It says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it blew me away this week as I was reflecting on 1 Peter 5, 5, of who wrote this. Because could you, I dare you to find someone more arrogant than Peter. Like, if you've read the gospel, like some of us, we think some things that we would never say. Peter says them. He corrects Jesus. Like, I know that I'll, probably everybody in this room, I know I've done it before, where there's times where God's doing something in your life, and you're like, that, I don't think this is the best way to do this. Like, we'll think that. Peter tells Jesus that. 
Like there's that, do you remember that one passage of scripture where Peter has just like aced the test? It's like, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's like, that's from heaven. That's where you got that, Peter. And then he start, Jesus starts talking about going to the cross. And Peter's like, no, 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 no cross for you. Get behind me, Satan. Like you actually just told Jesus he's not supposed to go to the cross. That's pretty bold, arrogant. And you'd think he'd learn the lesson. But do you remember when Jesus is about to go to the cross? And he says, you're all going to deny me? And Peter says, not me. And then Jesus clarifies, oh, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And then, do you know what Peter says? Go look it up yourself. He goes, these guys are a bunch of chumps. I'm your ride or die. We're good. I'm going to paraphrase. But you go find it. You can find it in the Bible. And then what happens? Exactly like Jesus said. The rooster crows. Their eyes meet. He's denied them the third time. And he realizes he's broken over his pride. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 is written 30 years after the crucifixion. And somebody who knew what it was like to be arrogant, he knew what it was like to resist God thinking he was serving God. Paul knew what that was like too. Paul did the same thing. He was actually blaspheming Jesus thinking he was serving God. See, these people that have been broken in their arrogance realize that that arrogance, you're actually setting yourself… Could you have a worse scenario than to have an all-knowing, all-powerful enemy? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And do you realize what the key is to being humble? Is understanding God's grace. And so, it's like this cycle. See, the grace that's being talked about here in this passage in Ephesians is Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's your calling the calling to which you've been called. Think about what's wrapped up in that. We talk about the calling. Can you believe it's still balancing? The calling, the calling is that you've been made alive in Christ, that you've been called out of darkness. You were far. You've been brought near. The dividing wall's been broken down. You're not separated by ethnicity any longer. Jesus Christ has accomplished that at the cross. That's the weight of the calling. That's the grace. How can we be proud when it took so much to make us alive in Christ? And you think about the cross. You think about what, what Ephesians chapter 1 says when it talks about Jesus having authority over every ruler, every power, spiritual authorities, rulers on this earth, like kings, presidents, whoever, queens, it doesn't matter, it was a democracy or dictatorship, it doesn't matter. He's got authority over all of that. And how did it happen? It was after his resurrection through the cross. And it says that that same power is at work within you. But you know what that also means? The cross is required for you. And, and how crazy in God's sovereignty that he would use a cross. Have you thought about this, Christian? The cross was designed as a torture uh, instrument by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. And the Romans would use it to intimidate their enemies. So you come walking into a town that's been conquered by the Romans. It's happened historically where they'd take 2,000 people, crucify them, and line the roads with it. So when you're walking in, you go, you don't mess with these guys. It's an instrument of submission. And so God in His divine wisdom and His upside-down kingdom takes that instrument and uses it to show His own authority over death and over sin so that you can have victory. Is that not crazy of God's manifold wisdom? And that was what required for you? To, like, that's how sinful you were, that that was what required. And now we're going to be arrogant? See, the key, the key to stripping us of our pride is to understand God's grace. It's impossible to be proud when you grasp God's grace. It's impossible to be proud when you grasp God's grace. 
And Peter tells us that when we humble ourselves, he gives us more grace. But when we're proud, we're in opposition to him. See, when we're humble, when we're humble, these other things become possible. The patience, show me a proud person that's patient. It's not possible. Gentle, you're entitled and arrogant and you're going to be gentle? Do you put up with one another? No, those are not, those are not things that happen. And so where, where does all the division in the church come from? Where are all these things happening from? It's from our pride, from our arrogance. We want things, we don't get them. So we get mad at each other and we start, James talks about this, we start fighting with one another. But Paul then tells us here, don't forget your theological foundation. And this is the Trinity, by the way. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We all have the same Father of all, who is over all and through all. And so here you've got these characteristics. You want a calling, you want to walk conducive to your calling, then the characteristics that are listed are characteristics of Christ. And what ends up happening is lived out in the body as we put up with one another, as we're patient with one another, as we're gentle with one another, as we're humble and serving one another, is this oneness that takes place. And what does that reveal? One Spirit, one Lord, one Father. That's how, that's how it happens. You don't need a unity conference. We need humility before the Lord. So what do we do? How do we live this out? What happens, what happens in this walk after this? Look at the next part. Second point. You're commanded to serve with the gifts you've been given. You're commanded to serve with the gifts you've been given. Verse 7, but grace was given to, and don't miss this, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's Christ's gift? Is Christ's gift salvation that we've been talking about for three chapters? Is Christ's gift the Holy Spirit talked about as a gift given to us a deposit in chapter one? Or is it spiritual gifts? I think it's spiritual gifts. You can study the passage on your own. We're going to talk about it in light of spiritual gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. And so now here's a little parenthetical where Paul's going to explain this, but I think it gets like a riddle. He says in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. What? That's what I was saying in my office this week. What are you talking about? He ascended, descended, which, up, down, who's, what's happening? So what you gotta do is take it little by chunks. You're studying your Bible and take it by some chunks here. What does it say at the beginning? Therefore it says, who says? He's quoting the Bible. He's actually quoting Psalm 68. What happens if you start reading a whole bunch of Bible people about this passage, you're going to get into some interesting arguments. He descended. Did he go to hell? Was it his incarnation when he put on flesh? Like, what's taking place here? And let me tell you, if you want to write a Christian fiction book, that'll give you some inspiration, right? Like, what was it like when he was… But we don't have any of that in the Bible. Then people are guessing. So what is it, when he says, it says, and he's quoting Psalm 68, you got to go read Psalm 68. I don't have time to go through all of Psalm 68. Here's the summary of Psalm 68. It's a victory psalm. God just led Israel in victory, and it talks about him standing on Mount Sinai, and the earth shakes. It's a picture of power. Setting his face towards Mount Zion and taking ten thousands upon thousands and thousands of chariots up, and people are bringing gifts to him. But here the passage doesn't say that people are bringing gifts to God. It says that God's bringing gifts to us. And what are those gifts? Well, in the next part of the passage, in verse 11, it talks about some different leaders in the church evangelists and teachers and pastors and prophets. And so you've got apostles and prophets that are foundational, and you've got people that are today that are, that are managing, that are leading the church, that are the evangelists and the teachers and the pastors. But then what can happen with that when you read the passage that way and just only focus on those things is realize those people are a gift to the church. That's true. But we start thinking, well, then it's their, their job to do all the work. Go back to verse 7. 
But grace was given to each one, not just to the pastors and the prophets and the apostles, to each one, each one of us, according to the measure of God's, of Christ's gift. And so He's given each one of us gifts. We've all been entrusted with gifts. Every one of you here, every one of you here has just talents. That's just part of being a human, by the way. If you read through the Scriptures, you'll see there's different passages on spiritual gifts. If you want to look them up on your own, 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. You'll see they've got lists of different gifts in all of them. None of them are the same. There's some overlap in some of them, but here's the reality. It doesn't list every gift that there is, and so you can find all kinds of different gifts. But you start thinking to yourself, what makes something a spiritual gift? Because I can go to the Guinness Book of World Records and see some unique talents, right? Like if you go look, to, if you go look at the Guinness Book of World Records, there's a guy in there who has the Guinness Book of World Records for being drugged behind a horse for the longest distance while on fire. Like, what, did he have a neighbor who was better at being drugged by a horse? He's like, well, just light me on fire and I'll get that one. Like, I don't know what happened with that. There's a guy who drags stuff with his eyelids that's in there. He's got the strongest eyelids in the world. Way to go. You win. I'm not interested. <laughs> but is that a spiritual gift? Oh, of course not. That's silly. But it's not like unsafe people only have silly gifts. There are unsafe people that are great teachers. So they can teach. There are unsafe people that are great leaders. They can lead. They're administrators. They can give mercy. They can do all the things that are listed in the Bible. What makes it a spiritual gift? It's when it accomplishes the purpose that we read about in this passage. Let me read them to you. It's verses 11 through, through 16 in this passage. These are the, 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 the pieces here. And so I, already, I mentioned the, the offices, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Uh, look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And so it builds up the body of Christ so that we no longer are children tossed back and forth by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitfulness. We stop believing lies. Does your spiritual gift help these things take place? Rather, speaking the truth in love, and, and some people say that a better translation of this would be truthing. So it's not just speaking, it's doing, living it out. Truthing in love. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head and the Christ, and so we have a greater understanding of who Christ is, our leader, from whom the whole body is joined and held together. Does it build unity? Does it bring people together in every joint with, which is equipped? Equipped means it's put into the place that it's supposed to be. This is your gift, whether it's hospitality or teaching or mercy or these are various gifts that we're going to see. Do they, they do these, that's what makes these spiritual gifts. They're used in the, the body together. And so, what we have here in this passage of Scripture is actually one of the most beautiful pictures of the church. I get Acts 2 is amazing. We get some awesome pictures of the church throughout the Scriptures. But this is where the, the body functioning together, this is how it happens. It's when we walk conducive to the calling we've been given, and part of that is you've been entrusted with a stewardship that's actually unique to you. This is one of the dangers of the spiritual gifts tests. And I'm not against the test. They're fine. They're the little catalyst to you to get your thinking or whatever. But the way you really find out your spiritual gift is living out with one another your unique story with your unique gifts. And then people start showing you how this happens and how it's not happening based on you trying things out, doing these things. So, as you think you have the gift of, gift of hospitality, but if somebody shows up at your house and you're like, oh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't think about it. I'm glad you're here. Probably don't. But when people come in and they feel like the defenses come down and they, they can just relax, you, you, might, you might have the gift of hospitality. Are you the gift of mercy and you're telling everybody all the things they're doing wrong? Probably not the gift of mercy at that moment, right? Like just 
You gotta, but you, you learn that, and nobody has them exactly the same. And so the, that's one of the problems I have with the test is like, you know, if, if, you're, if, if, if my friend Bob is told he's got the gift of teaching and I got the gift of teaching, doesn't mean we have the same gift because we all have a unique story. It's like, it's like this. Let me just ask, who here uh, was born outside the United States? Who here was born outside the United States? See, see some different people picking their hand up. Who's the farthest away? Who thinks they were born the farthest away from this place? People are pointing at other people that don't want to share. Where, where, where are you at? I'm from China. From China? Anybody got China? Anybody got China beat over here? No? Not wanting to compete? It's not Christian? It's not humble? Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Who thinks they were born the closest here? Anybody born on campus? This campus has been here for a long time. All right. <laughs> Rex, somewhere like that. I'm sure there's some people here from Raleigh. One time I did a new members class. We had 50 people in it. It was like 47 people from outside of Raleigh. Is that crazy? But I'm sure there's somebody here from Raleigh. And so you got China and Raleigh. You each have story. You got Raleigh? All right, thank you. We got one. We got one. I see that hand. I'm a pastor. We could do this all day. I see that hand. There we go. Another hand. I got you. I see you. Do you feel guilty if you're from Raleigh now and you didn't? Anyway. Um, so, but, but God decided to bring you both to the same place today and probably part of the same church family. I don't know if you're just popping in today and you're head of the airport, but probably part of the same church family. But I'm going to guess that the fact that one of you is from China and somebody else is from Raleigh means you have different stories. God's entrusted you with your story. And your story is whatever He's used to get you to this place in life at this very moment, at this very time. He's also given you gifts. One of the other misnomers we have with gifts is that they're forever and that they're static. No, He's given you gifts for in the moment, at that time. You see Him throughout Scriptures anointing people for a scenario, for a situation. Some, one of you, I've seen one of our pastors one time pray for somebody and the person experienced immediate healing. But I've seen him pray for other people who weren't healed. So does He have the gift of healing or not? He did in that moment. And so I could, let's just say I just stopped teaching. God can take away the gift of teaching. But in this moment, for this body at this time, I think He wants me to show you some truths from His Word. What does He want you to do as you're building up this body to mature manhood? Because you know what happens if we don't steward our gifts? Is you take this passage and you read it backwards. Look what happens if I read verses 13 and we say the opposite of these things. Until we attain to the unity. Okay, so if we're not using our gifts, then the church is going to be divided. Of the faith and knowledge of the Son. We're not going to have a good knowledge of the Son of God so that we can just make up whoever we want Jesus to be. Do you think that that's definitely happened in the church in America? To mature manhood, there's a lot of immature believers that have been Christians for a long time. Full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have no grasp of the fullness of Christ. So that, here's the reason, we no longer will be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we are blown around. Like, just think of, oh my gosh, the things that we think are true because what happens on the news or what happens in some blog or what some Christian leader decides to start talking about. Like if we were rooted in who Christ is and rooted and grounded in His love, we would not be blown around by these things. Instead, it says here, it's like we're children. Some of you, I'm going to expose your parenting, by the way, just right now, uh, real quick, and this might be good or it might be bad. You're liars. <laughs> you trick your kids, but you do it for good reasons, and so you justify it. Let's clean up your room. I'm going to time you. You are not timing nobody. Let's see who can pick up the most toys. And that, He's just manipulating those kids. But you know what? You can do it because they're kids. Kids are easy to fool. And the Scriptures are saying here that if we're not growing in maturity, we're easy to fool, only it's a lot more dangerous because your enemy doesn't want to fool you for good ends. He's deceiving you about things that are deadly and will destroy you. 
It says, from the whole body joined together and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, you'll never get to the place where God desires for you to be. That's what equipped means. You're in the place where you're supposed to be. When each one is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. The church will stay mediocre at best, probably decline, and revival is impossible if we don't use our gifts. This matters, and it's a huge calling. I want to conclude just with a quote from uh, Paul David Tripp as he talks about what you're being invited into, church. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity transporting them into His kingdom and progressively changing them into His likeness, and He wants you to be a part of it. Father, we come before You thankful that You've provided so many um, healthy churches in our community, but so many believers that, that are blown and tossed, that are disunified and wandering and confused. Father, I pray that You would help us to, as Atria, as Southbridge Church, and I know we have guests here, and I know we have people watching from all over the place, but I pray just for specifically for people, this is their church, that we would build one another up so that we would know the truth, that we would know Your Son, that we would walk worthy, not because we've got to earn something or deserve something, but because it reflects something of who You are, that we'd walk worthy of the calling to which You called us. You've given us a great calling in Your salvation. I pray You'd call somebody to salvation today. I pray that someone would trust Your Son, Jesus, as Savior that someone would hear some of these truths about what you've done and who you are, and they say, I want that. And you transform their hearts, transform their minds, transform their lives, put them on a new path to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.